Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, July 18th. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, landfills are the third largest cause of methane emissions in the United States. That's greenhouse gas. And much of what ends up in landfills is food waste. As much as 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to food waste, according to a new book. So what does targeting food waste really look like if we're going to make a difference for the climate in this area? if individuals and policymakers were to get serious about it. Joining us to outline the costs to the environment of waste we discard, as well as efforts to address it, is Oliver Franklin Wallace. He's the author of a new book called Wasteland, The Secret World of Waste and the Urgent Search for a Cleaner Future. He's also the features editor for the British GQ magazine. Oliver, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Hi, thanks for having me. And you write... If it were a country, food waste would be the third highest emitter of greenhouse gases on Earth, behind only China and the United States. Wow. Can you take us into the science of that a little bit to start out? Or, I mean, as you say, the numbers on on food waste alone are are absolutely staggering. So um, the UN estimates that about a third of all food grown worldwide is wasted, it's not eaten. Uh, when you think about when you translate that to farmland that's enough hectares of land in the world that are grown uh, that are used to grow food that's never eaten that farmland would cover the entire subcontinent of india and it's about one in five liters of fresh water extracted worldwide are used to grow food that's never eaten so as a climate challenge uh, it's a huge one but also it, it's a huge challenge because we have about two billion people in the world who don't get enough to eat every year uh, 130 million or so who are you know, starving. So uh, it seems to me to be this really low-hanging fruit in terms of problems that we need to solve, climate problems. Uh, and yet there's all sorts of reasons that we, that we seem to not be making an, enough progress, not uh, quickly enough. Um, but yeah, it's, the, the, the figures are, are quite staggering. And we'll get into some of the details of um, that match that you're saying is there to be made between helping to solve hunger in the world and helping to protect the climate. Um, But I just want to stay on what happens in landfills for a few minutes. Landfills give off methane, which is especially bad for global warming. A lot of people, I think, are still not aware of methane as a greenhouse gas. We always think in terms of carbon and decarbonizing the economy. But you're right, methane is at least 28 times more potent as a greenhouse gas then carbon dioxide. Can you explain that a bit further? Well, so, you know, whenever you throw anything away that decomposes, you know, talking about food waste, but also our clothing, paper, cardboard, anything like that, and it ends up in a landfill. Now, landfills are these kind of hot, dark, underground bubbles, essentially. These days, they're kind of wrapped in plastic. It's not just earth shoved over the top, but they're in these kind of big uh, sealed cells. And in there, bacteria kind of goes to work, and that these... But the bacteria that live inside the landfill produce methane, which, as you say, 
is this tremendously effective um, greenhouse gas, you know, hugely more more heating than carbon dioxide. Now, uh, there's been some amazing breakthroughs in kind of understanding this problem in the last few years because we have these satellites now circling the globe every day that can image and they can see uh, heat and they can see methane emissions. And they can see now that, you know, in the US, but also all over the global south, landfills are, are less secure, that there are these gigantic uh, plumes of methane streaming out and in places like bangladesh these gigantic mega landfills around the mega cities in the global south are producing the same amount of methane as you know tens of thousands of cars every day and uh, despite, so it's a gigantic yeah uh, yeah and sorry go ahead a gigantic contributor to global warming and despite all the methane produced you write about how landfills are less biologically active than assumed so if we were to dig into a landfill what would we find and what is that biological activity uh, that you're even referring to. Yeah, exactly. So there was always this assumption that if you kind of shut things away in a landfill and buried it underground for long enough, that bacteria would kind of do their work and uh, it would decompose and leave behind kind of a uh, an active mulch, I guess. Uh, but in the last few years, uh, through the work of various sociologists and geographers and things, we found out that that actually isn't true. And particularly at the center of these landfills, you know, there, there's a huge amount of pressure and things separating these from light and air. And there's quite a lot of toxic chemicals which tend to actually kill off the bacteria that would be doing the digestion. So the center of these things are more like coffins or something like that. Like there's not actually, they're actually kind of sealing this stuff away. But a lot of the time, it's not degrading and certainly not as fast as you think. So, for example, while I was reporting this this book, I visited a um, historic landfill where, uh, thanks to kind of coastal erosion based on the edge of the sea, and this beach is eroding away and exposing a landfill that was there from goes back to the 1930s. And I could pull out pieces of newspaper that were still readable from 1935 or like the mid-30s. And you could see old clothes. And in some cases, people can even kind of pull out food that is recognizable from many decades ago. So it's not this uh, this kind of solution that we thought it was. And in fact, we're kind of just kind of filling, filling the ground with these time capsules, as it were, that, you know, thanks to global warming and erosion and, and other things of that nature are starting to break open in places. And we're starting to realize uh, the problem we've left for ourselves. By the way, I think I'm learning from this conversation that Americans say methane and people in the UK say methane. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I guess it's like aluminum is what it's really called. But for some reason, you people say aluminium <laughs> and, you know, that keeps you on schedule, which is the wrong word for schedule. But uh, but OK, <laughs> methane. Um, the other problem with landfill, as you note, is that they leak. I think you were just alluding to that, and all of that is made worse by climate change. So what's the interaction or the vicious cycle there? Well, as I mentioned, you know, you have these big underground bubbles now that are surrounded in plastic. Now, the problem with some of those plastic liners is that they have a tendency to uh, be ferreted open by wild animals or they get eroded away by the weather, particularly if they're exposed by winds or water. And so, yeah, unfortunately, you do have this tendency for landfills to leak. Uh, anything built prior to around the 1990s didn't really have any of those uh, security blankets, as it were, anyway, which is why about 130 or so, perhaps more than that, of the sites on the Superfund uh, cleanup list are former landfills. So in, in a lot of these cases, we don't really know 
what's in these things. And if, if you go back decades, people were dumping all kinds of toxic chemicals. You've got lead batteries, you've got house cleaning, you've got paint, all this kind of stuff that's kind of mixes up together into this kind of toxic soup and has a tendency to leak its way out into our rivers and into our ecosystems. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, the, it, we're only really seeming to discover now the extent to which this is a problem and, and working out how to clean up after ourselves, as it were. So landfill really doesn't seem uh, like a solution that we want to continue, except in the, the most um, extreme circumstances. But yeah, particularly in the, in the US, landfill is, is still seen as the, the kind of go-to for our waste. Um, and we're not really recognizing the extent to which this, this may turn into a big problem later on. With the magnitude of the problem, as you were describing it before and as your book describes it, I don't think individuals can do it, right? We can't rely on, you know, that relatively small, I think it's fair to say, percentage of individuals who are concerned about enough, this enough, to take matters into their own hands and compost or otherwise minimize their food waste. As individuals, what we need is large-scale public policy. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I think that uh, one of the big challenges that we face, and this is true of all the climate stories that you'll be covering, is that you know, big companies and industries like to frame this as an individual problem and, and make you think about what you can do. When actually the real situ the, the real solutions need to be much bigger. You talk about composting. Uh, composting. Uh, in the US, I think only 5% of food waste is composted. That's yeah. largely because we don't have enough cities that have collections and proper food waste management programs. That's an easy fix. That's like a low-hanging fruit uh, there. But also, I think we need to talk to about to big companies, supermarkets, food companies about the size of portions and, and, and things and give people the option. If you're a two-person household, do you need to be buying these huge family packs that are going to go off in your refrigerator? So there's um, things like that that, that uh, we could take immediate steps. I think farmers as well, like farmers care hugely about this problem because they see their fields, you know, they have big orders coming in from supermarkets only to be canceled at the last minute or dry spells. Or what have you there's huge amounts of food waste uh that go rotting in fields that we're not using and that that's just a failure of our um of our the free market to to fix that problem but also i think there's a huge amount that um food retailers could do to step in to help farmers to make sure that that food isn't wasted and make sure that they can sell it at a, at a healthy profit margin and, and help our farmers because it, it seems crazy that we're throwing away food and people are going hungry and you write about how the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement set a global target of cutting food waste in half by 2030. Uh, so how are other countries around the world doing at meeting that goal? We're halfway there in time. We are seeing a huge amount of that work going on across the global south. You know, in places like um, in, in, in Africa, for example, we had a huge amount of food waste that is happening at farm level, things that are lost because of heat or pests or things like that, things that, or things where they get to market and there is an adequate refrigeration. So very simple things like storage and refrigeration technology and rolling that out across the world is making big strides there. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I think it, it's been interesting to see different countries take different approaches. There have been tremendous success stories. I mentioned South Korea as one. Um, Wales here in the UK is, is strangely another. Uh, but there are other countries that are still lagging behind. And if we're going to meet this target, then we need to kind of get everyone on the same uh, playing field, as it were, and uh, everyone behind this issue. Because, as I said, this this is the, when it comes to tackling climate change, this is one of the easiest steps we can take, right? Like it's, it's such a low-hanging fruit, and it could make such a huge difference. 
10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And the side effect is you get to feed some people. So it seems crazy to me that we aren't talking about this more regularly. Listener writes, um, I try my best to eliminate food waste in our home. When I buy full turkeys or chickens, I eat the meat, make soup with the carcass, bone broth, and goes on for there. Uh, listener writes, your guest said that the U.S. uses landfills, which makes it sound like other countries use other methods of waste disposal. What are those? Can you answer that? Oh, for sure. I mean, the U.S. is is among the world leaders in landfills uh, for an obvious reason. You've got a huge amount of space, uh, which is, is a luxury that we don't have in the U.K., for example, and to the same extent. But yeah, I mean, the the side effects for, for food for food waste, the alternatives really are composting or they are waste to energy, which we kind of mentioned earlier, which is something that has seen a um, huge explosion in, in Europe and in parts of Asia. That, that seems like a sensible solution in places where it can be done safely and well and the emissions can be managed. My issue with waste to energy plant, is, which is you know incinerating your waste essentially and tr trying to draw off some energy from that, is uh, that it competes with recycling, which we haven't really talked about here um, just yet. But it, the, the waste to energy plants really survive off burning things that are that, that burnt well, which are you know plastics and paper, which we need to recycle for the for the carbon benefits there. So I, I'd be careful uh, to uh, to support uh, incineration too strongly. But it does seem that we have alternatives to landfill that are uh, going to be a, a better part of the solution going forward. Since you brought up recycling, uh, you detail in your book how corporate greenwashing started the recycling movement. Can you explain that connection? And should people who consider recycling a good thing start to see it as a bad thing? Uh, no, you should see recycling as a good thing. Although, as you say, it, it's kind of uh, a slightly murky one and the stories of it are kind of fascinating and the ethics of it are kind of complex. But yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, um, in the 1950s, the kind of post-war boom when America was suddenly being flooded with all of this amazing kind of con new consumer products, they, we had this social problem of like, okay, what are we going to do with it? It can't just end up, you know, filling the the verges off the highway, which is what it was doing at the time. And so there was a big question of, okay, how do we legislate against the packaging companies, for example, in order to cut down on our waste problem? Now, the packaging companies all got together and they formed this action group called Keep America Beautiful. And their strategy was to reframe waste as an individual problem, much in the way, same way that companies like British Petroleum invented the carbon footprint to try and uh, you know blame individuals rather than big big corporations. Um, and it was tremendously successful. Some of your listeners re may remember the kind of crying Indian ads from the 1970s. Um, but as a result, we've kind of seen waste as as the result of litterers, litter bugs, those kind of things, because of this messaging over the um, over the last few decades. And we're seeing now a bit of a, a fight back against that and a recognition that actually maybe some of the companies that are pumping out unrecyclable plastics, for example, should be paying a little bit more to help fund cleanup operations or maybe not putting unrecyclable materials out there in the first place. So there's all sorts of discussions going on at high levels, both in the US and internationally. The UN at the moment is having this big plastics convention, trying to work out how to legislate um, against the plastic industry in order to stamp down on, on unrecyclable products. So we're seeing a huge amount of, uh, of of energy going against fighting back a little bit about that narrative that it's all down to individual choices and maybe some of the some of the answers are a bit bigger picture.
Timothy in East Berkshire, Vermont. You're on WNYC. Hi, Timothy. Yeah, hello, gentlemen. Um, Hi. Yes, uh, where I live, the largest farm in the entire state is about three miles away from me. Uh, and we're talking tens of thousands of cows. Therefore, you've got the manure going on. So the owner of the farm has owned some very large methane digesters, and he's working with Vermont Gas Systems to start a, well, uh, a natural gas or, or methane gas, you know, pipeline to heat homes and whatnot, which I think is a reasonably good alternative to the fact that uh, typically what, you know, where I live, you just have manure trucks going up and down the road all the time. Uh, so they have all this manure, therefore they fertilize it, use it as fertilizer. And then what happens with that fertilizer is that <clears throat> there's so much of it that it runs off into the river and creates all this phosphorus in the river. I've got the uh, second largest river right in my backyard. And there's so much phosphorus and nitrogen. I mean, the damn river looks British racing green, the color of the water. Mm. So, um, uh, you know, what would you like to see, Timothy? Of, what? Pardon me. What would you like to see happen? Well, uh, regarding the rivers, I think when they—I I mean, uh, and when they when they use the uh, fertilizer in that capacity in these open fields, I feel what they need to do is create a perimeter uh, where there's aeration. Mm -hmm. So it can go into the soil as opposed into the river or, uh, you know, just create a perimeter, you know, you can, yeah. only, you know. Like so that it runs off into something, something else other than the river. Timothy, thank, thank you for that uh, very vivid report. And we're almost out of time, but um, I, I want to make sure that we get to the idea of how not just to dispose cleanly of food waste, like by composting is the main thing we've been talking about, but also to reduce the amount of food waste um, by the match that we were talking about at the beginning that you reference in your book, how by, um, by well, implementing the right policies, the food that's grown around the world that actually never even gets delivered, we're talking about food waste as what we leave over on our individual plates for the most part. But mm. part of what you write about is how things that are grown never actually get consumed by people, and we could use um, the opportunity of trying to save the climate to also help alleviate world hunger. Can you talk about how? Sure. I mean, the as I mentioned earlier, so we have this huge, when we think about food waste, one of the big things to, that I'd like to think about is not just what we're throwing away, but the lost opportunities that we've therefore lost by throwing that away. So for example, we throw enough uh, tomatoes, tomatoes away in the UK every year that if you use the same amount of farmland and energy to grow wheat, that wheat could feed more than 100 million people. 
So the, 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 these things are not alike, right? And you could be growing things that last longer, could be shipped overseas, could be feeding people who, who need it. The, the, there are some fairly simple solutions that I'd like to see. A big one is supermarkets and food companies need to work with farmers, first of all, to treat farmers more fairly, but also to make sure that when they're putting in their orders, you know, they're buying orders, they're not over-ordering for what they're they're being sold. Now, that's that seems a relatively simple technological fix, and we're seeing some retailers do that already. There needs to be, you know, wide rolled out and widespread technological fixes to make sure that we aren't leaving edible food rotting in fields and farmers out of pocket as one. A second thing I'd like to see is a control on the amount of food that we're sold needlessly in supermarkets. You know, we're sold two for one, buy one get one free these kind of offers all the time it and most of the time a lot of the time that's to to reflect the fact that supermarkets have overordered um and and it means that stuff goes to waste like there's a big link Sci- scientists have found that there's a big link between uh being sold those kind of offers and the food that gets thrown away in our fridges a third one which is um relatively simple as well is that uh, restaurants are a are a hub for quite a lot of food waste and we're seeing some very interesting technological fixes there now simple stuff like uh there's a there are companies where they they weigh the amount of food that restaurants throw away and they use a camera that goes in the bin to kind of see what they're throwing away the most of and they say hey well next time you're ordering you don't need to order this many tomatoes because you know you throw away 20 percent of what that you're using those kind of solutions which are relatively low cost you could roll uh, roll them out across industries relatively quickly particularly you know, talk, i'm talking about big fast food chains and suppliers the starbucks of the world that can make a big difference we could start reducing food waste pretty quickly tomorrow and you know, I'm not saying that we're going to eradicate it uh, outright, but if this is something that we can bring down, it's a, such a low-hanging fruit for our climate target, and it means that we can have less hungry people in the world every day. So it seems to me something that we could all get behind uh, starting today. I want to thank you for translating tomato into tomato <laughs> for the American audience. Uh, and I want to thank you for being here overall. Oliver Franklin Wallace, Features Editor for British GQ Magazine, in his day job is now author of the new book, Wasteland, The Secret World of Waste and the Urgent Search for a Cleaner Future. I also want to acknowledge that the book is about a lot more than food waste. He gets into clothing waste. He gets into all kinds of other things. Um, but because we were doing this conversation in the context of our climate story of the week here on The Brian Lair Show, the um, most relevant seeming portion to the climate was the food waste uh, sections of the book. But we fo- So we focused on that. But there's a lot more really interesting stuff in there. So Oliver, thank you very much for the book. And thank you very much for sharing these pieces of it with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.